You're listening to the Reversing Climate Change podcast by the team at Nori, the carbon removal marketplace. This is a show about the innovators and entrepreneurs developing solutions to climate change. Hello and welcome to the Reversing Climate Change podcast with Nori. I'm Ross Kenyon. I'm one of the co-founders of Nori and the creative editor there. Today I have with me my colleague, fellow co-founder and CEO, Paul Gamble. Hey, Paul. Hey, Ross. Yeah, you were joking that we never talk unless it's on a podcast. I don't think that's strictly true, but is that how you feel? Do you feel neglected? <laughs> it's kind of the me? opposite of that. <laughs> the opposite? Yeah. Maybe we talk too much. I don't know. Could be. We should probably do doing more Nori shows because we've been thinking about a lot. A lot of it has impacts for how carbon removal works in general. We have a lot of interesting design decisions we've been really mulling over. I think we're going to get into that today too, because we have one of the members of our board of directors and one of our investors, Chris Berniski partner at Placeholder VC is here with us. Hey, Chris. Hey, Ross. Hey, Paul. Yeah, we wanted to have you on for a while, Chris, since you've been involved in crypto for so long. I feel like the show overall is somewhat neglectful of crypto and blockchain topics. And we wanted to talk about the industry as a whole, but also what Nori is doing and steps that we're making right now. So I hope you're prepared for such topics. I'm ready. Yeah. Okay, good. Well, maybe, Paul, do you want to introduce broadly what we've been up to, what the stage of the company is and how it pertains to crypto? Sure. So going back to the founding of Nori, like uh, what we're trying to do is create a global commodities market for carbon removal, create that price incentive so that people can know how much money they can make by removing carbon from the air. That way, market forces will push uh, new business creation, new technology development, and so on. And going to how Nori works under the hood, the whole design here is that we're creating our own cryptocurrency, the Nori token, where one token purchases one ton of CO2. And that should mean that whatever the price of the token is becomes the actual reference price for carbon. So that's been the vision since early 2017, before the company started. But since then, we've been focusing on building out the carbon side of the business because that turns out to be enormously complex as well. So since then, we're recording this in mid-September. So we've accounted for over 117,000 tons of CO2 removed, working with a bunch of different farmers who are sequestering carbon in their croplands across the US. Uh, we've got an exciting pipeline of new supply coming online over the next three, six, 12 months. And we are marching ever closer towards doing the actual token launch. So you can sort of think of what we've been doing as phase one is prove out the carbon side of the business, prove that we have the ability to measure and verify that carbon and sell it to customers end to end. And then the second phase is then rolling out the token and then letting the market determine what is the market value of pulling a ton of CO2. Um, so that, that's where we are right now. As a company, we're at 25 people. We raised our seed round in 2020, Series A, 2021, and uh, continue to move forward. Good. I think that's a nice baseline for people listening to broadly get caught up there. Chris, I want to talk about how you got involved with Nori. Why did you ink a deal with us? How did that happen? Uh, what convinced you that our approach was meaningful in some way? Sure. Well, my background is actually as a marine scientist. So I studied a lot of biochem and physics around the oceans in my undergrad and did a lot of climate science work. And how I ended up in venture capital is a long story, but here I am. And when Paul approached me in 2020, it was clear that 
he was the real deal and Nori was the real deal in terms of genuinely merging rigorous climate science with rigorous use of a blockchain um, and not fluff marketing or fluff convergence, but actually using the powerful nature of a blockchain as an accounting system to better account for carbon-backed assets. And then at the same time, use the power of that accounting system to create a transparent market structure that could price those assets. And I knew from some of my background that um, one of the problems uh, with carbon markets was their opacity. Um, So if you look at how things have traditionally worked, it's a lot of You could call it backroom dealing. And it's not that it's necessarily nefarious, but, you know, it's basically two entities talking with each other, typically at scale, that leaves out the little guy, uh, leaves out a lot of transparency. And it's two big entities coming to a decision on what the price should be. Um, And that's what's known as over-the-counter or OTC trading. You know, you don't get good pricing. You don't get optimal outcomes, um, either in terms of what's supplied in such an environment because access is limited. And so knowing that, the majority of carbon markets have worked that way, it's also easier to recognize that you need a market-based system. Now, market-based systems have been attempted and they have either been policy-driven or they have failed due to doubts around the legitimacy of the underlying carbon-backed assets. And again, these are things that in placeholders' diligence of Nori in 2020 that were known, acknowledged, and being attended to in the design. So let me pause there because there was a lot of thought that went into uh, making the the Nori investment, but we're happy we did it. Paul, do you want to fish for some compliments right now or do you want to just let it play out <laughs> naturally and hope it happens? I like the natural organic compliments myself. Were you looking for companies within side uh, carbon removal or climate tech broadly? Was that something that you were seeking out or did Nori just come across your, your desk and thought it looked uh, intriguing? I would say I'm always seeking out those investments. It's just finding ones that are earnest in the pursuit or in their pursuit is really difficult. And so Nori was the first that that fit the climate bill. And we've since done an adjacent deal with WeatherXM, which is more on the weather and climate data side, less on carbon-backed assets. But I love merging my background in you could just call it earth systems with my understanding and most of my career, I guess at this point has been in, in blockchains. And so melding those two is super gratifying for me. And then it's also part of what the world needs most right now. Right. So if, if I can allocate capital to helping accelerate solving some of these most pressing problems, then I not only have a responsibility to do so to, you know, placeholders, investors, but also to the world. So one of my life philosophies is everyone is doing the best they can with what they have, right? And based on their conditioning, people are motivated by different things. And some of those things might appear misguided to me, but to the person running the ship at the time, they might be you know, guided in the direction that they most deem to be important for themselves and for the world at that, that point in time. And so I would say, There's a lot of, or a growing number of refi projects out there with varying amount of success, some of them achieving a lot of financial success in a boom bust fashion, right? So very quick to rise, very quick to fall, that in a way are helpful for raising awareness around the refi movement. But the hard part of this problem is not creating a casino 
of questionable legitimacy around which you can gamble on the price of carbon. The hard part of this problem is creating really solid, trustworthy carbon-backed assets that can be priced and trusted around the world, right? And, and that really starts with making sure that the methodology around the sequestration of carbon and that you're actually sequestering carbon and not avoiding emission of carbon is robust. And then once you have that, which sure, I can say it in a couple sentences, but takes years to stand up as Nori knows better than me. Once you have that as your base, then you can start to create the markets around it. I would say a lot of refi as we know it in crypto just focuses on the market part. And the market part does need to get solved. But if the market part is solved on a shaky foundation of questionable carbon assets, then it doesn't do all that much for the world. Yeah, we both uh, intake of breath. I know I'm preaching to the choir here. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I I, I totally agree. I mean, the way I'm often talking about it is this is a supply side challenge, not necessarily a demand side liquidity problem. Like there's there's plenty of demand out there from companies that are going carbon neutral or carbon zero, governments and so on, and even opportunities in the crypto space to sort of gamify more carbon removal. Like that's not really the hard part. The hard part is the physical act of pulling carbon out of the air. And there just aren't enough people doing that. And then when there are people doing it, it's often very, very difficult to measure and verify that that that's being done. So that is really the bulk of the work. And I mean, there are a whole bunch of reasons why we've made the design choices that we've had in terms of not working with the existing offset registries because it's too, it's basically too expensive and too time consuming to do so. And so having to develop our own methods for the partners we work with, the third parties who are going to do audit and verification and so on, building that out takes a lot of time. It's quite difficult. And I think that as there have been new projects coming out in the refi space, they're not necessarily interested or willing to do that uh, more difficult component. And they're focusing on like the other pieces that they think they can do well. I just think that ultimately, if you are going to be dependent upon the carbon offset registries like Vera or Gold Standard, then you're always going to be short on supply because they just cannot possibly move fast enough. So everything that we do internally at Nori, which may seem opaque at some points to people, especially in the crypto and refi space, is really driven around how do we get really high quality measurement verification in a scalable way uh, from people who are removing carbon in different ways. And so like some of the things that we're working on right now are how do we sort of create new permanence and 10-year accounting standards uh, so that we can, basically the market sees a difference between different types of carbon removal. And so how is that being built into the market aspects of that? There's a lot of work that goes into that that's required in order to make it scalable. And I don't think you guys are opaque so much as you just go really deep. And so mm. like what you're alluding to there is the science of sequestration and actually accounting of ton years over time. And that's the type of thing where it's going to lose the interest of most people, right? Because it Mm -hmm. goes so deep, but it is important. And so it's not some flashy thing that can be done very quickly or can be uh, distilled into a meme, but it is important foundational work that someone needs to do. What are you trying to say about memes, Chris? Was Was that a jab? These are an important way to communicate to the masses, but they they cannot communicate all information. We've okay, fine, yes. Uh, <laughs> in this commodity market drive that we've been thinking about, some of our work is remarkably unsexy because I don't. We're not supposed to be uh, the farmers market 
little boutique model or the like direct to consumer, we have a an amazing product and we don't need to sell through a marketplace in order to reach our customers. We're almost trying to reach people who are doing carbon removal at much greater volumes and they need a marketplace to stand between them and the customer and to do price discovery and to make this whole system work. And um, that isn't really as attractive as going to the farmer's market. It's hard to, if you had to compare going to Target or Walmart rather than going to a farmer's market, you're like, come on, like it's a, it's a different experience. Mm-hmm. We try to compensate for that in various ways. Y- yeah. The problem is the underlying asset. We have to make sure the carbon gets removed from the atmosphere. Like that, it all starts from that. And anything that is built around carbon, carbon markets that isn't first and foremost ensuring that there's real carbon dioxide being pulled out of the atmosphere isn't really making any sort of impact in the way that we want to see. Like our mission at Nori is to see the world's atmospheric carbon balance get back to 300 parts per million. Crypto and blockchain are just tools to facilitate that. They're not the purpose of the company. The purpose of the company is to get carbon out of the air. And so many of these design decisions are quite difficult. And we spend sometimes weeks or months doing our own research, talking with different groups of scientists and other participants in the marketplace and so on, before we have to make sometimes quite difficult decisions about uh, how we want to go about this and, and, and seek out feedback from the market. So, yeah, I think your characterization is right, Ross, because we are trying to build this market that is simultaneously both accessible to an individual, but also attractive to the really large corporate players in the world who actually have the resources and means and will to affect like really large change in atmospheric carbon. Do you think it's worthwhile? Well, both of you should answer this question, but since a lot of these crypto climate intersection projects are quite focused on the demand side of this problem, um, does it make sense for Nori to be involved with them? I can see some benefits, but one of the things that worries me is the complexity of some of these projects with some of them are obscure financial instruments and tying Nori to that kind of complexity makes me worried. And I I don't even know if that is a justified concern. It's possible I don't know enough and I'm just being a chicken little. Well, I would say... You know, one of the things that originally drew us to Nori is it's an impartial but credible standard on carbon sequestration, right? And then it produces these reliable carbon-backed assets. And with the launch of the Nori token, the fungible token, a fungible mechanism to price them. The reason I go through all that is that's all permissionless, right? And so my view is actually that Nori has no say in who buys the Nori token or who uses the Nori token to buy the underlying NFTs. And that's part of the point of being impartial. And it's important, right? Because this allows a whole group of suppliers and consumers to coordinate around Nori as the impartial standard. And so I think that these crypto carbon projects should absolutely use Nori if it fits their bill of needs, right? And they can accumulate Nori's carbon-backed assets, the NFTs, and to do so, they would have to be buying Nori, the fungible token, at the going market rate for one ton of CO2 sequestered for 10 years. Yeah, we've we've talked with a number of them. 
The interesting thing is that we also have this philosophical belief that the carbon itself shouldn't be traded. We want our system to work so that every new dollar spent results in net new carbon coming out of the air. And sometimes that doesn't necessarily fit into the token economic models of some of those other projects. But we've been interested in exploring other ways uh, to make that happen and whether it is possible. But basically, yeah, I think it's a good thing to try to figure out ways to integrate demand for carbon removal from other crypto refi projects into Nori's marketplace. But we're, I think we're trying to solve like a slightly different problem than some of the other projects are. Let's unpack that a bit more because Paul mentioned the two assets, right? And depending on how much your users know already about Nori's design. But when Paul says the two assets, we've got one, which is a, a NFT, a non-fungible token, right, which represents one ton of carbon sequestered for 10 years. And that's carbon that a farmer facilitated putting in the ground uh, through the way in which they manage their land. So you could think of that kind of like the barrel of oil or the inverse barrel of oil, right? And that's, that's actually the asset that gets delivered. But when it gets delivered, it cannot be transferred again. And this is part of the beauty of blockchains, because Blockchain can programmatically enforce that. And the reason it's important for that asset to not be transferred again is because one of the games that has ruined carbon markets of days past is people will buy a carbon asset for a certain price, sell it to their friend for 50% cheaper, and their friend gets to then also use that asset to offset their carbon and then sell it again. And so you get this game of hot potato, which actually you could have, say, three different entities using the same ton of CO2 to offset what they're all claiming. Whereas in the actual world, that should be three tons of CO2. And that's what's accounted for. But in reality, it's only one ton of CO2 that got pulled out. And so that's bad for um, our climate and, and bad for climate change. So just going back, there's that NFT asset, which is like the barrel of oil, but it is it, it is a carbon-backed asset. Then There's the fungible asset, which is the Nori token, whose whole purpose is to set up price discovery around the carbon-backed asset. And the reason you need that price discovery and through a fungible mechanism is you can get a lot more scale, you can get a lot more liquidity, and you can start to get complex financial instruments um, like futures or a variety of derivatives, which people can use to lock in future carbon prices. Because a lot of players at scale do not want to participate just in the spot market, just in the market of like here and now, they actually want to say, okay, if we're committing to say carbon zero through 2030, and we're in 2022 planning for fiscal year 2023, how can we lock in our cost of offsetting all of our missions in 2023? If they have complex financial markets or a deep set of futures that they can source from, then they can theoretically, they can buy the assets they need to offset their carbon liability in 2023. And so that's more of the future ahead of Nori. It starts again from really credible carbon-backed assets, the NFTs, and a spot market. And if that base is solid, then you can start to build a whole world of more complex and global financial instruments. Those agreements exist right now, but they very much mirror the old school way of carbon markets too. Like these these long-term future-looking deals that happen where they're buying carbon removal that don't exist yet. 
very much look like the bespoke business development model of classical carbon markets, which require a lot of individual vetting and relationships and that kind of thing. And it's not driven by financial instruments, which may be a good thing in your mind. But if you want to get to scale, seemingly we need that kind of market, I think. One thing that's interesting that's been happening lately is there have been more and more advanced market commitments in the space. So the biggest one was the called the Frontier Group, which is an alliance of companies like Meta and Microsoft and Stripe and Shopify. Almost a billion dollars committed towards purchasing carbon removal. And they're they're out there, they're doing their own specific diligence on particular carbon removal companies and their technologies and so on. And then they're going to purchase in advance the next, say, five years worth of however much carbon they remove. And there are a few interesting things to draw from that. One is that they are not waiting around for like Vera or Gold Standard to certify those projects. They're just, they're just straight up paying for it, taking their word for it. Two is that the volumes that they're purchasing uh, shows that, uh, I mean, these companies are so, so thirsty for carbon removal. They, they, they can't, they can't source what they need. And so they're, they're taking the advanced market commitment approach, which is a, a thing that is typically lauded by a lot of economists. I think it's sort of interesting in this space. So they're, they're doing this because they want to drive more money into the space, help with research and development, help bring about economies of scale, help these companies grow. But it's also in some ways preventing a, a larger commodification of the market. So we're trying to take a different approach. And I think one that is more market-wide rather than specifically for a handful of different carbon removal companies. And we're trying to take this approach of saying, Exactly how Chris is describing it. If you want to be able to purchase X number of tons of CO2 over the next Y years, then purchase X number of tokens and then use them as inventory comes online. And then the signal that is being sent to the supply side is in the form of the price of the token. So we've designed this that there are a finite number of tokens, 500 million that are created, and this should be deflationary. So as the demand for carbon through Nori's market increases, so too does the demand for the Nori token. And with a fixed supply, that should then drive the price higher that meets that market demand. And then there's more and more of a financial incentive for suppliers to enter the market and remove more carbon and sell that carbon through Nori. So we're taking this like holistic market-based approach as opposed to some of the early buyers, especially, um, but players in the carbon removal space are taking a, a more individualized market approach. Well, I think they think that it's just too early for commoditization mm-hmm. of carbon removal. And at the skills that they're talking about, they're, they're almost certainly right. I wonder mm-hmm. how long their assumptions will hold as true. I'm wondering, like, is it is it one year? Is it a couple of years? Because at some point, and we're building the, the infrastructure for that next step as we see it, so that when, it, when that supply comes online, it's really able to uptake and it's no longer a bespoke individual process. It's more like a classical financial markets, commodities market. And we talk about the different types of methodologies and how they're supported by uh, token economics. I know there's been a fair amount of discussion between you two about to what degree there should just be a Nori token versus uh, a token for each family of methodologies. Perhaps there's one for ocean-based removals, another one for biochar, another one for direct air capture. What's your thinking on that, Chris? I know you've had a, a long story to... On, We're opening debate. this can of worms. <laughs> yeah, tell, let's get into that because that's an interesting okay. conceptual question. <laughs> well, I would say the, the conversation is ongoing and 
my view is that if if nori is to achieve this global scale that we desire and that starts with one ton of co2 reliably sequestered for 10 years then as nori adds each new methodology where each new methodology has a different cost structure to sequestration and a, a different duration generally of sequestration then the best bet is to create different fungible assets to price each carbon type. And so what is originally the Nori token could become the soil token, right? And it prices this one ton of CO2 that's sequestered for 10 years. And then let's say you add a kelp methodology and that becomes the kelp token, um, or you add a direct air capture um, methodology and that becomes the DAC token. And DAC, you know, depending on the technology, maybe there's the 100-year DAC and the 1,000-year DAC, just as there are uh, different durations of bonds, let's say. So I think that there's a lot of precedent within a marketplace to do that. And it really, for me, hinges upon the longevity of sequestration and the cost structure. Okay, counterpoint, Paul. (laughs) It's not like counterpoint per se. Yeah, it's, yeah. Uh, trying to make it a little spicy for you. Yeah. yeah, like we're trying to stand up a token from nothing to having it being adopted by market participants and have it uh, reflect like the actual price of carbon. And so, you know, the trade-off to what Chris is describing is now you're talking about many different tokens and managed liquidity for many more of those, which can become more expensive, more difficult, more complex as you go about it. There are also things that like we have not even fully, let me back up and say, we're doing a lot of research work in this space right now. Um, we, we've we built out our supply side team. We've got a methodology analyst on the team now who's been doing a lot of um, scientific research, talking with different carbon removal research groups and so on. So we don't have a formalized opinion on this yet, although we hope that it'll be coming out relatively soon. The other approach is uh, more for simplicity's sake of if, if you can get it down to a single reference price for token that has some sort of time-based element to it as well, then it's just intuitively easier to understand. There are other uh, potential benefits of that as well, but mostly for avoiding the complexity of uh, the liquidity challenges is why we've taken this Nori overall token approach so far. And I think the optimal path could be somewhere in between. I mean, all of these things end up mm-hmm. being path dependent. And so right now the focus is, you know, the one fungible token to price the one type of carbon-backed asset, which Nori is, is producing in conjunction with farmers. And these are Maserati problems, we could call them. <laughs> Maybe that's the wrong term to use, but like these would be very nice problems to have down the road should Nori achieve that scale of success and liquidity. And then at that date, if there's you know enough momentum around Nori and let's say Nori is being featured in the New York Times and there's you know billions of dollars of liquidity and people are you know really excited about the next carbon back to asset that Nori is going to release, at that point in time, you know, there could be a token split or a new generation. There would need, I totally agree with Paul, liquidity is a key thing. And so I think you would only start to split or fragment the market at a later date, should there be sufficient liquidity to then slosh into the two Mm -hmm. new 
asset types. I'm going to stand in for the audience here listening, maybe not familiar with how liquidity works or why it's important. Chris, what what exactly does it does it mean in this context? Sure. So liquidity is often confused with trading volume. Um, the 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 two are different. So trading volume just shows your daily turnover, dollar turnover of assets traded. But especially in the carbon markets, which are more weakly regulated, there can be a lot of wash trading. So just as an example, Paul and I could trade back and forth between the two of us, you know, $1 of BTC a million times over. And you could say, oh my God, a million dollars of BTC traded on this exchange today. But if all that was ever offered or sold on the market was $1, then actually the liquidity of that market was only $1, even though there was a million dollars of trading volume. And so liquidity refers to the depth of what can be bought and sold on a marketplace at any point in time. And so you'll see liquidity often showcased in terms of slippage at different unit amounts. So, you know, if I want to place a $100,000 order, what is the slippage on that? The slippage referring to how much will the asset deviate from its market price. And so if you had 20 basis points of slippage, that is one fifth of a percent of slippage for a $100,000 order. And then maybe at a million dollars, you're facing 1% of slippage. And so the world's markets vary in their liquidity, right? With the US treasury markets, the most liquid markets in the world, meaning you can buy and sell billions or tens of billions of dollars of assets on those markets without moving them all that much in the context of percent moves because those markets are so big. But just using that example of $1 traded back and forth a million times might be a million dollars of trading volume. But if all that was ever on offer in the books of that exchange was $1, then the liquidity of that market was only $1. So a case here might be a farmer is paid a Nori token and they go to sell it. And there's two buy orders of people who are willing to trade for that token. And one of them is for $30 and one of them is for $10. And once that $30 order gets bought up, the slippage is $15. They just they just drop down to that next one. There's no depth between Correct. there. There's like, no depth to that market. There's no more counterparties. It's maybe just, that's it. And that's... Yeah. And that would not be ideal for people participating in this market. And there are various ways I think we're working on to to avoid this sort of fate too, some of which are kind of fancy. I don't know if you want to introduce some of that, Paul. Well, yeah. So DeFi introduced uh, like apps like Uniswap introduced the concept of having an automated market maker. So it works a little bit differently from having like a centralized order book where you've got a spread between bids and asks. And instead you just have a bucket of tokens against a, a bucket of another asset, whether it's a stable coin or ETH or, or a mix of different other assets. And the ratio between them is the price. And so the cool thing about an automated market maker is that there's always a price. You can show up and there's there's always a market price for it. In the most simplistic models, you can't necessarily do something like uh, limit orders, which is saying, I'm, uh, make a purchase at this price when the market moves to there. Um, you're more just buying at market rate. And then it's also typical like for 
markets to have market makers who are helping uh, reduce volatility and make it easy for people to trade within the liquidity of that market. So these are the different sorts of things that um, basically every crypto project does and uh, normal traditional financial markets do as well. I would layer in that these mechanisms we're discussing are most relevant to Nori, the fungible token mm -hmm. that prices mm -hmm. the underlying NFTs. And that's because a farmer just wants to receive a, a certain amount, really in, in dollars. And the whole point of the Nori fungible token is to create a depthful market, so a liquid market around the Nori token, where the Nori token will have a pretty reliable price. It might directionally go up over time if there is increased demand for carbon over time. That could be one way to think of it. You could also say, hey, directionally, I think that the cost to sequester carbon over time is going to outpace the demand for carbon over time. And so maybe the Nori token should go down in price over time. That's not necessarily what history has been showing us right now because there's so much demand in such a short period of time for carbon. But you know, a market is made of both sides and the price between those both both sides is is the market price. And the important thing to realize is the point of the Nori fungible token is to allow all of these market mechanisms to create depth around the pricing of carbon-backed assets and abstract a lot of that complexity away from the farmer. Which is quite similar to how they normally operate. Like when, they, when they're growing corn, they harvest their grain at the end of the season, and then they store that grain in a silo or a bin, and they wait for a global commodity bushel of corn price and they sell it and they sell in tranches at prices that they that they like so this is uh almost identical to how they normally operate their business i have kind of a weird conceptual question for you chris should nori be a dow eventually yes in that nori if it wants to eventually get to this state of being you know an impartial global protocol for carbon sequestration, I think it needs to have as minimal of self-interest or extraction as possible while mm -hmm. still sustaining the system. And not um, if it becomes too self-interested, and sometimes companies, because of their profit motive, can become too self-interested, then often you lose the impartiality of the system. And so I guess I should back up and say Nori does not have to become a DAO, but I think that as DAOs grow up and you know they're going through a steep learning curve right now and the promise of DAOs is very far from the current reality of DAOs, but that DAOs are set up to also be, say, these more impartial and global governing structures, they're of course going to always be caught up in the drama that is the human existence until, you know, Perhaps it's algorithms guiding us and we're just vetoing or approving the, the decisions. But I would say that a DAO is aligned in theory with Nori's mission. And then it's just seeing whether in a few years or five years time, if the reality of a DAO is able to handle the scale of Nori at that time. And if not, it might be waiting longer. Or I think that, you know, Paul and um, you, Ross, and the team is mission-driven enough to always hold, say, this pursuit of maximizing the amount of carbon that is pulled out of the atmosphere pretty much at all costs 
then perhaps that could keep Nori, the company, um, minimally self-interested in corrupting the system. I basically agree with that. The areas I've thought about have been around some sort of crowd-based governance on the methodologies. So how we onboard new methods of carbon removal, how the measurement and verification happens, how do you decentralize that further so that it's going beyond just having individual third-party auditors and that kind of thing. And also the questions around as you're onboarding new methodologies, what factors need to be taken into account as you are introducing new elements into this existing larger market. But I love the concept of DAOs, but as Chris said, I think that there's so much immaturity in the space. And I don't mean that in an emotional way. I just mean that um, we've seen some, although I guess that's true too. Growing but pains. There are growing pains, certainly in terms of DAOs. Like, like the the DAOs right now, where every vote is like ninety nine percent to half a percent. Like that doesn't seem to me to be providing like totally effective governance. And I would wait to see for some sort of newer, more effective models to evolve before we like took big steps in those directions. Like I would say, if you were to distill down a DAO or what I think of as like this this new digital governing body over either digital or global networks. It's allowing the closest approximation of the constituents to govern the network or mm-hmm. the service. Whereas right now it's the shareholders or the politicians, which are to date the closest approximations of the people who guide that network or service but they're pretty far approximations and they get corrupted in all kinds of ways that we understand well. And so then the question is, can a DAO structure create a better approximation that is less corruptible? And that's the pursuit. Yeah. These are such interesting questions. And we'll Uh, fail at it in a million ways because we're human and we're imperfect. Yeah. And DAO being what decentralized autonomous organization. I should define that at the beginning even, but hopefully through context clues, you kind of get it. But to what degree? And I should... think of it oh. less as autonomous, with the exception of I don't know how machine learning is going to work its way into DAO organization. Yeah. And so they'll only be mm-hmm. like, I think right now we're at the stage and we're trying to figure out decentralized organizations and how can they become better approximations of the constituents and guide in a way that benefits the most constituents that participate in that network as possible. So we're at the decentralized organization stage. Machine learning is progressing at such a wicked fast rate alongside the progression of blockchains. And these blockchains are these open data systems where without being too buzzwordy, there's an intuition in me and, and amongst, I would say, a fair amount of futurists that understand both worlds, that there will be a convergence between the way that machines digest and synthesize information at scale with governing these organizations. But it's just finding out how we can do it in such a way where the humans don't lose control, where they still have veto power over the machines, and that like the machines are producing like sensible suggestions, right? Without getting into the like philosophical concept of a machine having soul and a governing body having soul. You, <laughs> you do want Christ, things okay. <laughs> you, like you, you you do want things that are like in the the mission of that network or that service, right? As Nori has a mission. 
I'm really interested in this question of to what degree is democracy or how can democracy be used in a productive way here? Because it's not like democracy doesn't have any dysfunctions either that they could bring to the mix. Sure, politicians and shareholders have well-defined incentive structures, many of which are uh, suboptimal, but the same could be said. I mean, the classic example is mob rule. How do you avoid that? I've seen, I mean, there's ways of avoiding it too. I've seen interesting work on quadratic voting or -hmm. ways of, of people saying, how much does this matter to you or ranked choice voting? Or there's various dynamics that have gone a lot farther than one person, one vote. But uh, I feel like I don't trust decentralization in this way quite yet. And it might be a machine learning advance that's necessary. But I have the sense that our work is so difficult that adding hobbyists with less uh, direct daily involvement in this would not help it. But I feel like I'm caricaturing it or I'm possibly being unfair to what I might be giving up by it. So what am I missing something? Like help talk me into it a little bit. No, I don't think you're missing anything. I, I think... V1 of DAO experiments that went through direct democracy, so one token, one vote, and everyone who's a token holder can be a voter. I don't want to call them failures, but you know they didn't work or they are not currently working in the way that people hoped because you get a lot of voter apathy because there's just too much decision making. And then you get you know a plutocracy often because it's just the people who have the most dollars can control the votes. And there's more problems that pop up, but basically suffice to say, direct democracy isn't a stellar success to date in DAOs. We have pretty good examples of representative democracies, right? Uh, that's what the U.S. is. And they are there are people claiming that they are stressing at the seams, you know, with the amount of information and change that we have going on. And I think a problem with any governing system is it actually gets captured over time. And it's kind of, I I think of it as like human systems accrue this sludge and then like that sludge builds up over time. And then the the sludge has an immune system that keeps itself from getting cleared out. Right. And so like a lot of times you just need a full reset and that's where like blockchains are full resets. They're basically parallel systems to the existing financial, economic, political systems that we have today. And so we could do a full reset of representative democracies, and they would probably work better for a time and then run into the same issues that we see with representative democracies today. As I said earlier, I think machine learning will work its way in here. The other thing I want to say to not let go of some of the promise of direct democracy or ways in which we could allow for some of it is if you look at DAOs, there are some people experimenting with a certain token amount to submit proposals. And that's basically like saying, hey, anyone can submit a law for consideration to Congress. And that that's actually quite cool um, in its openness, right? And you could have, you could even have another DAO of small you know, constituents who rally together to raise the funds necessary to hit the proposal threshold to then submit to a larger DAO because it's so important to them. And then the bigger governing body will then um, weigh on, you know, whether this proposal gets passed. But I think that is perhaps more overlooked than it should should be that, um, you know, these systems can be open to the entire world for proposals. And they, they have a method for filtering that. But over a certain bar of, say, meaningfulness, anyone can submit a proposal. And that's super cool, because then you're starting to get into, you know, crowdsourcing decision-making and information from the world. So I think we're going to keep 
playing with these things. And Mario, the governance researcher at Placeholder, he wrote a piece on institutional isomorphism, which is a fancy way of just saying, once one thing works at scale, everyone will copy it, right? And that's what we're working towards with DAOs, where there's all these experiments, you know, the movement, Bitcoin, you know, the white papers, 2008, the network, January, 2009, still very young movement. Um, so we're a bit over 10 years in. I think over the next 10 years, we will get some successes. They'll be open source. And then people will just like copy paste that DAO organizational structure. Um, and then it'll just spread like wildfire. Okay. I would love plus, to plus see one. It. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> I agree. Yeah. I would love to see something like that. Were we able to harness, I mean, the power behind something like the Linux community is and, and just open source in general is a beautiful, magical thing when it works. I'm, I wonder how many of those I don't know about because they failed so badly. And how do I make sure that my company, which, you know, blood, sweat and tears does not turn into one of those by opening yeah. up in the wrong kinds of ways. You see, I just went on a long enough monologue that you forgot your original question. Was there a question? Well, I think that means it's time to end the show. Is what that means, actually, Chris. We've hit we've hit that moment. Is there anything anyone is dying to say before we wrap up, or is now an okay time? No, you don't have like a bonus monologue, Chris. You're ready. You're ready to call. No, it? no. I mean, I think there's lots of stuff that we we could talk about, and I may come back on this podcast um, at a at a future date as Nori is matured and grown, but gone through a lot of growth. And yeah, I'm just excited to see where Nori goes. And there's there's so many topics either on this or adjacent to this that we would be glad to have you back on to talk about this. But thank you for your time for coming on, Chris. Thanks for having me. Paul, good to see you. It's been several months since we've last spoken. So thank you. <laughs> yeah, we never talk except on this podcast. So <laughs> nice to links, see your ass. Yeah, links to uh, Chris's uh, very active Twitter feed and placeholder VC are in the show notes. Thanks so much for listening. Please give us a great rating in Apple Podcasts or Spotify. It helps us a lot. Thanks so much for listening and have a lovely day. Thank you so much for listening. If you could please subscribe and give us a great rating and review on Apple Podcasts or a rating on Spotify, that'd be much appreciated. It helps us get our content out to more people. You can sign up for our newsletter at nori.com, follow us on social media, and we will catch you next time.